Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sci, a podcast about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in this amazing marriage. I'm one of your co-hosts, Amber Wallen, and Ben will be joining us soon. This week, we sat down with award-winning author Nisi Shaw. Today, we'll be interviewing Nisi on their most recent book, Talk Like a Man, and their work on the 2020 World Fantasy Award-winning collection, New Sons. Nisi Shaw's essay, Crash Course in Science Fiction, has been a guide for this podcast. But Nisi has also won an otherwise award, formerly the Tip Tree Award, for their short collection, Filter House, and has a Nebula finalist and otherwise honoree for their novel, Everfair, an alternate history in which the Congo overthrows King Leopold II's genocidal regime. Finally, Nisi is an educator, and they co-wrote Writing the Other, a practice approach, which is now the standard text on diverse character representation in imaginative genres. So let's jump right into our interview with Nisi Shaw. In your most recent book, Talk Like a Man, your bibliography of nonfiction is almost as long as your fiction. Your essay, particularly a crash course of Black science fiction, has been an invaluable guide on this podcast. So we were just wondering if you were to write your PhD on science fiction, what would it be on? I have no idea. I, I mean, I am a college dropout, right? <laughs> so um, if I wrote my PhD on science fiction, it would probably be a novel. I, I just, I lost my taste for the academic long, long ago. I don't know, maybe there are various things that have been interesting to me along the course of my career, such as the prevalence of sexuality in science fiction uh, written by non-white people. Um, it, it's, it's much less prudish and it's much more ever-present. Um, another thing that has interested me and that you know I could possibly write a PhD on is the blurring between science fiction and fantasy and horror, the blending of those genres in the writing of people of color. Um, because, you know, science is not necessarily universally defined across cultures. And so, you know, you have stuff like Nadia Korafor's Lagoon, in which, yes, there are aliens invading from outer space, and there's also like, roads that rise up and devour people. So is it science fiction? So yeah, that's interesting you say that because when I read your nonfiction, it feels very academic for me. So it's funny to hear that you are done with academia, even though like the work that you've written feels for me very academic and very like thought provoking. Even in this, your most recent book, Talk Like a Man, you have this talk that we'll get into, but it feels like just rich with like history and context and all the things that in my mind, I guess, make academia. So I guess like, what are you thinking when you say, oh, I'm done with academia? Well, I shouldn't say it so so bluntly. Um, it's just that uh, I have been a speaker at you know college campuses and and I've been on academic panels and their approach is far different than what I have. So I'm very flattered that you find my work interesting and that it has that kind of academic depth. 
but for instance, when I was speaking at Duke University, I think I was actually, that was the genesis of the piece in Talk Like a Man. Someone talked to me about the project of science fiction. And I'm like, a project is something that you do during science fiction. It's like, you know, a show or uh, a comic book or something. Uh, and then I was talking to them about the intent behind a particular piece that I wrote. And I realized that for me, intent had all sorts of connotations that it did not in an academic sense. Uh, for me, it, it was from the pagan religious side. Uh, intent has a very specific meaning in, in terms of how you are practicing and building your, your rituals. And to them, it was just intent is what you intend. So what I'm saying is that once, once you're up next to academia, you see these differences in jargon and in attitude, and I don't have them. So if you could have a do-over, do you think you would choose to go to school and go back through it or just say like, I don't need this school. I'm just going to write and be this awesome game changer for the genre. I'm just curious. So uh, I distinctly remember when I, before I went to kindergarten, I remember someone telling me, oh, you're going to be going to school for 12 years and then you might go to college too. And I was like, oh, come on, I have stuff to do. <laughs> and the, like the first day at school, I jumped out of the window. Now, fortunately, it was on the ground floor. This is in kindergarten or the first day yeah. of college? No, the first day of kindergarten. I <laughs> jumped out the window. Oh, my gosh. It was on the ground floor, so I was okay. But, you know, that kind of tells you, no, I wouldn't go back and, and start over. I might choose some different fields of study. One time I had an interview, a live interview with Ted Chang. He asked me what I would have done if I wasn't a writer. And I said, without you know pausing a beat an architect i would have been an architect so you know that is quite a different academic path i might i might have enjoyed that in your interview with terry bison you lament about not getting the opportunity to critique cyberpunk since it was fizzling out you say quote i hadn't get, yet gotten a crack at smacking it down it cyberpunk was dying with my hand on the murder weapon perfect summary of a critic i felt like that was just flawless so uh what would you like to murder uh critically speaking in uh genre fiction oh gosh really pretty much all of it has 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 sort of like tottered off to death <laughs> and and there are all sorts of new things that that have sprung up in its wake uh, not just cyberpunk oh anything else that i would want to slaughter off for the good of the genre. I would like to get rid of, I don't, it's not a school of, of writing, but this tendency to like just put diversity into your story by sort of like painting people with like, you know, a paintbrush of race. So like, you know, basically someone will, will do what I call the United Colors of Benetton approach to uh, science fiction. They'll just say, okay, and this one, you know, is from Bangladesh, and this one is from Singapore. And 
and it's just, it's such a shallow approach. It has nothing to do with their actual culture. You know, it's just like skin color. Maybe if you're lucky, they like say something about the hair. That's it. I would like to get rid of that. I would like to kill it dead. Oh, I love that. We recently, on the show, we cover literature and movies of Black creators and Black authors. And we watched this one movie. I'm not sure if you've seen it on Amazon Prime. It's called Black Box. And it was a movie that did just that. It, all of the characters were Black or paintbrushed, if you will. But culturally, it didn't matter that they were Black at all. It, it didn't matter for their, their names, their jobs, their familiar relationships. It, there, there's something that was so unblack to the story. I was like, this is even like the musical transitions. I'm like, we couldn't have gotten just like a little trip hop beat right here. Like, what, what, come on, what's going on? That's yeah. so interesting. Uh, I want to ask a question about that interview as well. Speaking of like very black things that you can't paintbrush. One of my favorite parts of that Terry Bison interview was when you talked about how black people just make joy out of horrible things. And I laughed out loud when you cited like chitlins as an example of that. So, I mean, for the record, do you actually like chitlins? Oh, well, at this point, <laughs> um, I am under a... Uh, a mandate not to eat any four-footed animals unless I'm going to war. Yes. yes. Okay, so if you see me eating some chitlins, duck. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a war zone, yes. Yeah. Uh, that's such a great answer. I think that's, I might steal that from you as my out to not eat them anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I have, uh, well, let's, could I call them fond childhood memories? Uh, familiar childhood memories of cleaning them okay oh god that's the worst part exactly. the only thing worse than eating them is cleaning them <laughs> yeah yeah um but you know you gotta have what you gotta have you gotta survive so you mentioned that in the crash course that you felt like you should not include one of your books on the list of uh, crash course of uh, science fiction, black science fiction, Filter House, which we read, but it is important because it was one of the first books by an African-American to win the Otherwise Award, formerly the Tree Award. And I want to start with two stories in that collection, Good Boy and Mamawatu, because they both deal with a pandemic. And my God, it was so strange uh, to hear words like quarantine and pandemic and uh, fears of soft surfaces as we're living through this. So I just wanted to hear about like, what was your thought process writing about this 20 years ago and the prescience of that, those stories now and those- And how now. you knew that this was gonna happen essentially is what I, we're I, asking. I didn't, I didn't. Um, actually the genesis of uh, Mami Wada was Octavia Butler. It was something that she said. She said, write about what you fear and my phobia is parasitic insects, which she was also, by the way, terrified of. A lot of, of, of what she wrote is based on what she learned in, in uh, the Amazon about some parasitic insects. But for me, you know, I can just, I'm, I'm fine with, with hating on fleas and ticks and lice and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote about them carrying diseases, you know, and so that that's really where that came from. I was not, I did not foresee the current situation. And good boy, uh, that had a bunch of sources, but the medical part of it was actually my interest in, they were called provers. 
there were people who in the early days of homeopathy, which is a problematic branch of medicine, there were people who would go about and try out different poisonous substances, plants, you know, venom, different things and, and see, you know, what symptoms they got and try and match those with the symptoms of different diseases. So I was interested in seeing if you were in a, an environment uh, on another planet, an extrasolar planet, what would you encounter and who would be these provers who would interact with this substance, this new substance and check it out. So yeah, I was getting a little ahead there. <laughs> was there something that you didn't anticipate and predict that happened this year that you don't think you covered in the story? Like toilet paper gate? <laughs> <laughs> like what were the things we couldn't have predicted? Oh, I don't know. Uh, the thing I will say is that science fiction does prepare you for being unprepared. Um, and it does, um, inculcate that sense of wonder and that sense of like being in a familiar place that is utterly strange. So any, any science fiction that I write, any science fiction that anyone reads is a, a good way of, of preparing for being utterly overwhelmed by newness. One of my favorite scenes from Good Boy is when these kids decide to throw a party in the middle of a pandemic. And yeah. it's just... Oh my gosh, like, <laughs> Nisi, like that, that was perfect because I can't tell you how many times I've seen on Instagram, Twitter, reading the Chicago Tribune of parties being thrown during the middle of a pandemic. Like, yes, you, you are, you are a, you are a prophet. Like that's, that's what it comes down to really. Well, thank you. No, it's, it's an old impulse. I mean, you know, there, there were parties during uh, the plague years in Europe, um, you just have to read like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death. It's like, um, it, and it's the same sort of thing when you have people who have near-death experiences and then they immediately want to have sex. You, you uh, go very quickly from uh, destitution and devastation to like, everything is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's just watching what people do. So you recently received a, a World Fantasy Award for editing the best uh, short story collection, New Sons. And one of our favorite stories was the highly erotic and terrifying uh, Jamie Goes, the, the Freedom of the Shifting Seas. And you've described yourself um, as a mermaid. Uh, you wrote a story for uh, Like a Coming Wave, uh, Oceanic Erotica. Uh, so what is it about oceans and erotica and sex that works so well? Well, our bodies are where erotica is displayed and where we share it. And our bodies are pretty much oceans. I mean, you know, they're, we're what, I'm, I'm gonna make up a, a statistic here. We're 98% uh, water. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that that is very much a motive factor. You know, this, the, I don't know. I. If you've ever looked at videos of like an octopus moving or anemones, for me, those are real, real erotic. Those are turn-ons, man. And I, that undulation and that movement that, and that freedom and repetition, I think those are all very strongly connected to the erotic impulse. 
I love that. They're so satisfying to watch as well. And I, I think that's likely one of the reasons why, like when you're just watching the little barnacles, just like open and close, you're like, why, why can I watch this for hours on end? And now why am I horny watching barnacles? What's happening? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where there's, there's just a very visceral connection. Very important question. Uh, where can we read about fornicating centaurs? <laughs> You can't. Perfect segue. <laughs> you can't. Uh, that story, I don't even know if I have it anymore. Um, all I could do is I could I could uh, quote the lyrics of the song that the drunk fornicating centaurs sing. Um, <laughs> that's all that's left. Um, hopefully, hopefully nobody has a copy of that anymore. It was typed. It was not. Uh, you know, any digital format. So it, it was rejected. Nah. One of the things I loved reading about your biography is that you said that you were a mermaid, but your sister came from a garbage can. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, please say more about the garbage can. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know, there's like, a, there's this like playfulness to a lot of like your writing and like your ability to just like connect with people. And you have like lots of lots of different uh, connections. But uh, something that I found so interesting, especially about New Sons, was that you mentioned in an interview that you just reached out to your friends. You're like, hey, I'm gonna put together uh, a, a collection and you know, it's a world fantasy award-winning collection, but there's not a lot of people who could just like reach out to their friends and like put together like an award-winning collection. So I just wanted to uh, hear a little bit about how you've built that community over the years in the science fiction community to the point where you could just reach out to friends and be like, hey, wanna write uh, for, for, my, for my collection? We will win awards, guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah, my uncle has a barn. Let's put on an, an anthology. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, um, so there's a couple of things going on. First of all, I live in Seattle, which is the home of Clarion West, which is one of those premier workshops. I've been involved in, I've volunteered, I've been on the staff, on the board. So I get to see both a lot of newcomers to the field and a lot of tried and true veterans of the field when they come and teach. So I've been able to form connections that way. The other thing is that I can't remember what year it was, but there was a year when one of my idols, CJ Cherry, was a guest of honor at a science fiction convention. And I went and, you know, kind of made a fool of myself, fangirled all over her, dressed up like her. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so I became very early on involved in science fiction fandom, which is quite powerful. It's quite a force in the field. Um, so I kept going, even though I was very often uh, what Nalo Hopkinson calls and what the title of the essay, uh, the interview is, uh, The Fly in the Sugar Bowl. So, you know, I was often like one of black person in a sea of like 800 white faces. And so what I would do if I saw another black person or another person of color at all was go up to them and say, introduce myself and shake their hand and stuff. And I guess that paid off after a while. I'd love to hear just to detour a little bit. I know earlier you talked about paganism and I really enjoyed the chapter in Talk Like a Man about how you feel 
religion and science fiction can work together and as opposed to in contradiction. So I'd love to hear about how you came to be a part of the religion that you are, because I don't know, I, I was just raised Southern Baptist and I'm now in Chicago and I'm able to like have my own spiritual experiences, of course. But even when I first started practicing yoga, my mom was like, well, now you're not going to go to church. Like everything's in opposition to the religion and things like, even though I wasn't going to church for a while anyway. But so I would just love to hear how you found that really delicate balance of your spirituality with your science fiction work. I never perceived that they would be in opposition. Again, I say uh, what is science is has has many definitions and so quite quite often you know what is what is scientific in my religious teaching is is not the same as what is science in like you know the university setting so how i came to it i mean you know i had been doing some reading i had read uh for instance ishmael reads mumbo jumbo i had some ideas about what was involved in African-based spirituality. And then someone gave me an interview in a, in a yoga journal, I think it was actually, with Louisa Tish, who became my godmother. And I read what she said, and I realized that what I had been missing was the idea of cleaning in a, a religious practice and how that, how setting boundaries and having a taxonomy was crucial to the practice. So I went and met her and I, I never thought that I was in opposition to anything that she taught. In fact, she was very impressed with the idea that I was writing science fiction and gave me what we call homework, sort of like spiritual exercises and practices to do to increase my understanding of science fiction and my ability to get mine out there. Reading uh, your essay, Aoife, Reverence, Science, and Social Technology, just coming back to that, the, and the way you redefine some of the language, it just made me think of this experience where we were in Southern India and we were traveling through giant temples with a friend of ours. And our friend kept on translating uh, the term idols and the, well, the statues as idols. And it just didn't sit well with me, that translation, right? Because there's this, this total loss in translation because the Christian term idol, idol is something that you smash, right? It's something that's wrong. Where when he was describing it to me, it was more of like an index pointing to the larger purpose, right? So it would be more in terms of icon. Icon would be a better translation. And we had this discussion. It was a really awesome discussion. But it just made me think reading your essay, like how often do you have to redefine your terms when you're talking to people about religion? Or are you sort of like, I'm not redefining my terms. I'm not going to explain this to you. Like, how do you draw that line between over explaining or deciding to be like, nope, I'm not going to explain this to you anymore? Well, there are certain words that I find loaded that I avoid, and I will sometimes tell people why I'm avoiding them. Um, idle is a good one then there are certain words that I have to, I use them, but I explain that I'm not using them in the sense that most people do. Um, a friend of mine in Michigan talked about ceremonies and rituals of the Catholic church. And he almost always used the adjective empty. 
empty ceremonies or empty rituals. And I had to tell them they're not empty for me. <laughs> you know, they are meaningful for me. Um, they are physical meditations. They are like, if you're walking a maze, that is a physical meditation. If you're preparing a certain kind of meal without speaking a word, that is a physical meditation. So it is not empty in the least. And the, the line that I draw is basically like, how well do I know you? Do I like you? You know, do I care about you? Most people, I'm just like, I don't have time for that. I, I really don't have time to explain all this. And so sometimes I'll like make jokes at them and mock them. And gosh, uh, on Facebook, for instance, uh, someone, we were talking about Bridgerton, which I, as far as I'm concerned is like, it's a television series where somebody just said, okay, let's paint all these people brown. So uh, one person in this Facebook discussion said, accused me of being a snob. I said, yeah, I'm a better snob than you are. Just what can you do? You know, you can't change people's minds like, like that, like a snap of the fingers. And I don't have much time to spend on people changing people's minds when I don't particularly care about their minds. Oh, wow. What a word. Yeah. Something that really struck me in uh, Walk Like a Man is your story, Something More, because in there you play with this, uh, this fantasy trope of possession and writing, like the difference between those. And, you know, Nala Hopkinson and P. Jelly Clark and other writers have explored that distinction. Um, can you share a little bit more about that distinction that you set up between like writing and possession? Because I think for both of us, like who, you know, I'm not very religious, but I grew up very evangelical Christian. We would just call that possession as like Christianity. And, uh, but there is this distinction. And I really like that something more sort of teases that out a little bit. I guess I'm not sure how that, how that comes across in the story. In, in uh, my mind, what's going on is people are able to open, to, to welcome some, someone else's spirit into them rather than having it forced upon them. And, and that's the only distinction that I actually see. Is, does that make, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So there is this line where the lady addresses the, the main character in there and, and says, you know, I'm not going to possess you and enforce you, but I'm, I'm able to move with you. And there's this, this fluidity and this unity instead of this power and control. And yeah. that just struck me because I think, especially for someone who comes from a Pentecostal movement where all the language is bent around power and control and expelling demons and exercising and exercising. And so this, I I just loved reading something more because it is taking a lot of that. There is like that fantasy trope of like the demon and these power uh, conflicts, even though there is a power conflict in this story, but there, there is a unity between the spirits. And I just found that so beautiful and so dissonant to what I think a lot of American readers, especially American Christian readers, would think of when they think of a spirit entering into one's body. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that is, that is something that actually opened up to me. The idea that, that I could follow this tradition was that you set boundaries. <laughs> this is me, that's you. And you are welcome to come and be with me 
at this time, when I eat these foods, when I wear these clothes, when I do these dances, and the rest of the time, you're gone. In your short story, Wallamelon, uh, you provide a disclaimer about the religious tradition in your story, but saying that, you know, it borrows from other traditions, but it's not a known practice. And it just made me think of this conversation I had with uh, Daniel Jose Older about religion and short stories at C2E2 a while back. He probably would not remember me at all, but it, it was a pretty enlightening conversation. But in there, he said that when he reads about like Sant- uh, Santeria or other religious practices and short stories, they end up just becoming props for like a pure fantastical element. And I just wanted to hear like what balance should a writer find between appropriating and misappropriating religious practices uh, in their short stories or in their literature in general? Oh, well, uh, oh, by the way, Daniel is a, a, a co-religionist and a, a friend of mine also. Yeah. I don't know. I When I wrote Wallamelon, I wanted to make sure and write that note because it was so close to my practice that people might think that it was legitimate. So I wanted to make sure that people knew that it was distinct. Most of the time, what I see people doing, I see them doing very well. And it's there are fantastical elements to the story which are approached that by religious means or magical means rather than just sort of like summed up in the magical process, if that makes sense. There's a distinction between the path to the utter strangeness and just being utterly strange. A bad example, an example of a time when I saw something being exoticized as your religion is just, you know, something really spooky and weird is uh, that movie with uh, Lisa Bonet and Mickey Rourke. Oh, good. I can't remember the name. I'm so glad. (laughs) It'll come back to me. But um, that movie is is like, you know, everything that happens in in, uh, this New Orleans voodoo is creepy and, and uh, full of the devil and all this kind of stuff. Which The Princess and the Frog did that as well, the Disney show. Okay, good. The I Disney movie that. with like the one like black Disney princess who was then turned into a frog, but all, all of the voodoo was vilified. Yeah. So um, an example of someone doing it well, who's not a practitioner, Tanana Reeve Dew's Good House, in which, you know, there are these like really horrible, horrible uh, spirits. Um, And some of the ways that that people get in touch with them include voodoo. But it's not that voodoo is weird. It's that these things are weird. So that is the distinction that I would draw. I want to talk about Women of the Doll because I I, I love something more, but I think that was really one of my favorite stories. and I, I, I needed more of that story. I feel like you're tricking me when, when I only have a couple of pages. And I was like, no, I want to learn about the rest of the women. So I'd love to hear about your connection with dolls. Do you have a doll collection in your home? I, I find that so fascinating. 
I, I just imagine your house made full of dolls in some way. Oh, no, no, I, it's not full of dolls, but I do have like maybe six or seven dolls, <laughs> dolls with very particular functions, shall we say. I have a doll called Frida, who is on my ancestor altar, because she represents my, the longing of my ancestors for freedom. Um, the, the doll on the cover of Talk Like a Man is, um, is her, her name is Lily, Lily Beatrice. And I've had her for a long time. She was given to me back when I had a punk rock band by my guitarist. Uh, so yeah, she needs a new dress, Lily. Um, and she uh, is the one that has been traveling with me the most, the longest. I have a doll with wings. It's like a fairy. Yeah. I got a ton of dolls and um, not as many as some people. I believe Ellen Datlow has a larger collection or maybe she only has doll heads. Oh my, I, I'd love to hear, I know in your book you talked about how dolls are where we learn how humans interact and how we start to develop some of our compassion for humans. And sadly, dolls are so synonymous with one gender in like, growing up and things like that. So do you feel like other genders really miss out on that experience? Or do you think, have you, in your opinion, do you think, you know, just little girls have a better understanding of how humans interact because of that stigma with dolls? I'm just interested to hear what you think about that. Well, uh, you know, culturally, it definitely is more supported for girls. But G.I. Joe, toy soldiers. I mean, again, you know, it's only in a, a military aspect, but um, th there are ways in which uh, boys and others than girls are encouraged to play with dolls, but it's, it's just, they're not as strongly encouraged. But, you know, you'll, you, there are dolls for boys in uh, like Toy Story, for instance. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are dolls for, for boys in real life as well, you know, spacemen and, and that kind of thing. Uh, the thing that the huge difference that I see is that the dolls that are for girls can often be children, can often be babies. The dolls for intended for boys are almost always adult. That's the only difference I see. And they are not called dolls, <laughs> right? In A Woman of the Doll, something that it made me think about is this whole American hysteria around animated dolls, like exemplified in like the puppet master and Chucky. And again, like you play with that because at first you get like a, spoiler alert, people, there is a talking doll in this story, but the true horror, the true haunting nature of the story is a character realizing that the home that they want, and I think one of the most terrifying scenes in the short story is the home that this character wants ends up not being the home that they receive. And so you, you sort of put this speculative aspect of the doll and you juxtapose it with people losing their house as home. And the thing that ends up being more terrifying is this woman in uh, the story not being able to find a home or to find her house. And she has to end up realizing and accepting that. And I think the speculative element made that moment more real. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about juxtapositioning speculative elements with like very real, 
like emotive, immediate experiences, especially in this story, which is about someone losing the possibility of a home. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, to me, I, I find that story actually more hopeful. I mean, yes, this particular place is not going to be her home, but she is going to keep looking and the doll is going to help her keep looking. I think of the doll as symbolizing the lost childhood that she is. So in that way, um, the juxtaposition is really, it's the crux of the story as well. Although, yeah, I know that there are some creepy moments when the doll is coming to life and stuff like that. And uh, I enjoy getting people worried that they're going to be too creeped out and then calming them down. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. We were, I, I was freaked out. I get scared just even just like ventriloquist dolls and goosebumps. So anytime a doll is in a story, I'm like, oh my God, who is this doll about to kill? But it was so interesting. <laughs> it was so wonderful to see like, oh, this doll represents so much more. I That was my favorite story. Yeah. So I just want to read a line from uh, Women of the Doll. And I actually sort of wrote it down in my journal to sort of as a, a reminder for me. You wrote this line and I, I changed a little bit, but look in the mirror and see what you decide you should see. Like, but that line is so powerful. I, I just like underlined that in the book and it just, shit, like where, where did that line come from? It, it's, it's a beautiful line. Oh, uh, okay, thank you, thank you. you. You're very careful readers. We do a lot of, of work with mirrors in my religious practice too. I think that there's a whole thing that goes on with mirrors and projection and that what I see in the mirror is not necessarily what you see when you look at me. So if I can change what I see, then maybe I can change what you see too. Okay, uh, and then I'll, then I, then, you know, I can talk about like my acid trips and stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there was um, the first time I dropped, I, I've always thought that I have really large, unattractive feet. I've always been very self-conscious about my feet. So the first time I dropped, I spent a long, long time at the beginning of the trip looking at my feet and realizing that I could have a really bad trip if I just <laughs> did not get over hating my feet. Again, I, again, I really love this short story, but there's this whole playfulness that you have in Women of the Doll where the mirror is both a reflection, but it's also a window because it is only through looking at the mirror that we sort of get this, you tease us a little bit, Nisi, you tease us about this whole larger world of women of the doll, right? And it, I feel like, like just, I think it was like two paragraphs, but I built this entire world of not a uh, secret society because it, you don't, you know, say secrets. It's a hidden society, which is, I, I thought was a, uh, a clever play, but I love that image. And a lot of writers do it, but I think what you did was so beautifully where the mirror is both um, a reflection and a window. And yeah, I, I was just curious about what your thinkings were about um, mirrors as both reflections and, and windows and how you decided to play with that in the story. I, doesn't everybody see them as both mirrors? Re, mirrors are both reflections and windows. I, 
come on, everybody, sure. I, <laughs> no? <laughs> You're giving us way more credit. You're, uh, us, us mortals do not think about <laughs> it in that way. So it was just brilliant. Thank you. I mean, I, I, it's like what it's in something more and more too. It's, it's in something more because, you know, any kind of reflective surface is also something that you can go through. Probably got it from um, Alice through the looking glass. You know, speaking of, uh, of music and this collection, you have like songs show up throughout the entire collection. And you mentioned that you were in a punk rock band, correct? Correct. So can you share a little bit about how that has fused and danced its way into your writing? Uh, yeah, well, I said I would be an architect, but I actually have been a singer and a composer. And I, I have like, what, four albums worth of material that hasn't been recorded at all. And, and um, it just seems to be very mysterious. Music is like, how does it do what it does? I think I understand writing a little bit better because, you know, we speak and the, the words have an impact and they have meaning, but music has an effect that is pre-verbal. It is subverbal. It has an effect on our, our bones and our hearts. Um, it's, it's like, it's like water in that way. It, it's, uh, suffused throughout our being. So when I when I try and write, I often will use um, musical cues. For instance, the story that I'm most recently working on is called A Merman I Should Turn to Be. And that is a subtitle of a Jimi Hendrix song. <laughs> 1983, A Merman I Should Turn to Be. Um, and within that song, I mean, I mean, within that story, um, I have a band <laughs> putting on a concert playing Steely Dan songs. I, I have, I don't know, I, I put all sorts of references to music within my work. Again, doesn't everybody do this? Come on. <laughs> so, so yes, but not well. I, I think... <laughs> I mean, just Lord of the Rings is just awful. I hate the music in there. But then you read something from like yours or like uh, I think Ancillary Justice where the AI is constantly humming. Like there was something about where you you actually, you know, you have a band and something more and, and so and the music is sort of like fused throughout and it's a way to connect to this like netherworld, but it's also a way that's uh, pushing the narrative plot forward. And it it just, the the ease in which it, so I think, yeah, a lot of authors do it, but I think there's this idea of doing it well, which it struck me that to, to read about that in your works. Um, maybe it's because, yeah, because it, it's part of my lived experience. And whereas Tolkien was uh, an Oxford Don, he probably wasn't, you know, going out and singing at the bars or anything. In our last few moments, I'd love to hear more about writing the other. I am a black actor in Chicago and I know that acting the other doesn't translate the same way all the time and there's this constant debate even within the acting community about like the rise of the black British actor in a lot of American roles now African-American roles and so I'd love to hear how 
how those two, do, do you think those two can exist or is writing the other limited just to that medium? It probably needs to be expanded uh, quite a bit, I would say. I do a bunch of the teaching involved in writing the other uh, with Kay Tempest Bradford. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, and uh, another person that we draw on fairly uh, often is Monica Valentinelli. So we have gone and we've consulted uh, for people who are putting together games, um, role-playing games, you know, tabletop stuff or uh, online stuff. Um, but we haven't gotten into the acting stuff. Um, script writers, you know, we probably need to expand and include that. Um, I just wrote it about writing science fiction because that's what I do. Um, but it, it, I think that the tools can be applied elsewhere if that's what you're asking. Yes, I, I am and it's, it's, it's more of a debate and a struggle because there are so few, you know, if there's going to be only probably one Harriet Tubman movie the one person that's cast is like a British American and it's it's a little bit different of course but I don't know we, we recently read a book that was written by someone who didn't live in New York but about New York characters in Harlem and Rikers Island and stuff and some of the writing just didn't seem authentic and even though he might have done the research and studied he you could just tell like this is someone who lives in Connecticut or far from far from these communities that he's writing for because it just didn't feel authentic and and how to navigate that and Ben was talking about like well what is literature if you can't observe and research and tell these stories and it we just read a, a book where it, it just did not work like that person was clearly like looking through a telescope at this other community and it just fell flat yeah well you know um sometimes when it's a situation like that you don't even know what you're missing um, like I did uh, a sensitivity read, which it sounds like was needed in this case, a sensitivity read, there was like, it was uh, a cartoon, a comic set in punk rock times. And the author was very thrilled that he had actually included a black punk rock band. And, you know, there was a whole scene where they were like all going to spend the night somewhere after a concert. And, um, I asked him, so what, where's, where's her hair products? You know, and he had not even considered that she would need to have like, you know, some hair grease, you know, a scarf at a minimum, bonnet, <laughs> something right. Um, but it wasn't because he was, um, hadn't done the research. He didn't know what to research. And so that's where someone who's doing a, a sensitivity read can help. And yeah, you know, I mean, for instance, Everfair, a lot of it set on the continent of Africa. I have never been there. You know, I needed help with that kind of stuff. What did I miss? You know? You know, we're almost out of time, but it, it just made me think sort of a, more of a, a joking question. But um, in the first story of Talk Like a Man, uh, walk like a man you write from an AI body perspective so I just was curious like did you have a sensitivity reader for that judge I'm <laughs> no no I wish that would be great uh maybe in another year or so <laughs> you know I, I 
I love that story because uh, Amber gets so annoyed with me, but I keep on bringing up this idea of those Facebook algorithms who learn to talk to each other. And because yeah. they weren't, you know, they weren't fulfilling their purpose, they were end up being shut down. And I was like, is that euthanization? Like, I, I, I don't know. And your that story, um, because I, I don't want to get too into it, but it's a queer like love story between uh, anyway. I had to reread it because I was like, oh, the italicized text is okay. Let me let me start back from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a great story. But I was just curious about some of the research you did for the the body AI. That was mostly um, trying to put myself in their place. Someone who I think has done more research along those lines again is Ted Chang. Um, uh, who wrote the life cycle of, of software objects. Um, and he actually works with uh, this sort of programming and uh, development. So he knows more about it. Me, it was just like, what would it be like to walk if you had never walked before? And suddenly you have all these adult muscles. And so, yeah, that, that was just imagining. It's it was really uh, fun to read and to see how you fucked with the syntax. And um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Nikki Drayden's uh, The Prey of Gods. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, before we go, uh, I, if you could share a little bit more of about the projects uh, you've been working on and what uh, our listeners can go check out. Okay, uh, so um, I have a short story up online at the Arizona State University website. That's, uh, it's called Fourth and Most Important and it's set in this milieu of the five petals of thought which came from a dream. It's like a fake philosophical movement. <laughs> As I said, I'm working on probably just gonna do revisions at this point of a short story called A Merman I Should Turn to Be that will be published by Amazon Original Stories. I'm working on, I'm on chapter nine of a new Everfair novel, a sequel to Everfair. It's called Kinning. And if you want some idea of what that's about, there's, I've already written a sequel to the novel that I'm writing as a sequel to Everfair. It's called Slippernet and it's up at Salon. And uh, just the last few days, I have been sending out invitations to New Sons too, to that anthology. Yay. So hopefully you'll be sleeping soon <laughs> <laughs> because you sound very busy. Very, very. I haven't even talked about all the stuff. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. I know you're busy. So uh, again, just thank you so much for giving us your time and just sharing your brain with us for this time we had. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for uh, the thoughtful questions and um, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Sci. Next week, we will be reviewing His House, the film on Netflix directed by a black man, Remy Weeks. So be sure to watch His House and listen in for episode 20 of the Sci-Fi Sci. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.